I had been challenging her before about certain things, but because she was older than me, I think I always found it a bit hard. Um, and then I just said to her, you know, what's in your bag? And she sort of grabbed her bag and rushed out of the house. And that was the last I saw of her. Mm. And it was, yeah, it was the sort of the aftershock was really yeah. hard for me because it was over a period of years that we had been hosting her. Hi folks, Matt here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Raw Mission, the podcast where we bring you challenging and inspiring stories of ordinary folks sharing the good news of our extraordinary God in some of the toughest parts of the world. Now I know you're going to love listening to today's guest. Molly spent 21 years in North Africa with her family and carries a wealth of wisdom and experience and plenty of stories. Hi Molly, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited because you've given me a little flavor of some of the stories and experiences you've had in North Africa over the years. Um, so, yeah, let's start with a little bit of your background. What took you to North Africa? Right. Well, I was studying languages at university and I have always enjoyed travel. But while I was in my third year in France, spending a year in France, I became more aware of the need in the French-speaking part of the world of uh, believers, of the message of Jesus. Mm. And so when I was finishing up my last year, I was asking God, I'm ready to go somewhere. Where should I go? And I knew I wasn't going to stay in England. So I applied for two things. One was to teach English with voluntary service overseas that might have taken me to Kenya or Uganda or somewhere in Africa. Hmm. And during my time in France, I'd also come across an organization that did exchanges for people to teach English and uh, in certain French uh, places where French was spoken. And Tunisia was one of those places. So hmm. I applied to teach English in Tunisia as my two potential options for when I left university. Right. That's awesome. So, so you ended up doing a couple of years in Tunisia as an English teacher, but having done your, finished your studies. And I mean, was this brand new to you? Had you traveled much in your childhood or grown up with these, this kind of thing on your mind? I am half Danish. My mother was Danish. So I grew up traveling from a young age back and forth to Denmark mm -hmm. and uh, getting older in Europe, we would have some holidays in Europe together, but mm. not to Africa, not to anywhere outside Europe, actually. Okay. But I, I did like uh, everything about different countries. And I remember when I was about 10, hearing at a church that I was attending at the time with my parents, although I wouldn't say I was following God then by any stretch of the imagination, but I was very interested when somebody talked about a leprosy mission in India somewhere. Mm -hmm. I remember being so touched by that, that I went and got the little wooden box and mm -hmm. was regularly putting every week my little bit of uh, change into the box to support that. So I think the Lord worked some compassion in my heart. And then later on, when I had these two options, I was asking him to show me. I wasn't really sure at all which one. And then I had a dream very clearly the night before I was due to give my final yes to voluntary service overseas. So I'd gone through the whole interview process. 
and they had accepted me and I'd not heard a word from Tunisia at all. And I had a dream, never had a significant dream before. And I was going up this staircase and there was a big arrow on the staircase and it said Tunis on it. No. So it was amazing. In the morning, my mum knew I had this deadline and she said, so what are you doing, dear? You know, and I said, well, actually, I'm not going to go with voluntary service. I, I had a dream last night. Mm. <laughs> I don't know how well that went over, but uh, that was it. I, I turned down the one thing and then I still waited several months before I heard back that I had a teaching job, although I'd never taught before. So that was a challenge. Wow. And what was that like then, arriving in Tunisia? Uh, as, at this point, you were single. Yeah. I was single. All I knew was that someone would meet me at the airport and I could stay with a Tunisian family for three or four days. And then I was on my own. Wow. And there were two or three other fellows on the plane who were also doing the same kind of exchange from the UK. We yeah. sort of came across each other at the airport. And then I was taken off to some Tunisian person's home uh, I didn't have a plan for what I was going to do. But amazingly, I did go to church. There was an international church in Tunis on mm -hmm. the first Sunday when I was there mm -hmm. and met some people who said, oh, you know, there's a place that you could stay while you look for somewhere on your own. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what I did. I ended up staying in, in the church house of the Anglican Church in Tunis for two years with the vicar and his wife. It was an amazing provision that I could never have planned myself, but uh, that was so wonderful to see God going ahead of me. That's great. And, uh, you know, our younger listeners will, will not realise that, you know, they, we're talking about the 80s and there was no internet and you couldn't just right. Zoom home or Skype home and chat with your family. You couldn't just quickly research where's a good, you know, place to stay, Airbnb in Tunis. Right. In those days, you just sort of set off, didn't you? And mm. see what would happen. I remember in my gap here to India, you know, we just told family, well, I don't know, we're just going to travel around India. Our <laughs> family didn't know where we were for months at a time. In right. Found a phone and maybe called home occasionally. Yeah. yeah. Gosh. Yeah. And how was the overall experience, those first two years in Tunisia then? Is that where God gave you a heart for Muslims? Definitely more of a heart when I was there on the ground among them. I, I had realized when I was in France, I'd come a lot uh, across a lot of North Africans there. Mm -hmm. And I was, they were getting much more on my radar. Uh, so I, I was drawn to the whole situation in North Africa, recognizing that there were not many people focusing perhaps on, on that region. Mm -hmm. It was, I, I learned by trial and error. So I hadn't had any training um, to, to do this work, you know, I was teaching English, but only 12 hours a week. It was an evening post. And so I had all the daytime to wow. uh, learn language, which I started on and make some friends. Mm. But I think probably I was a little bit of a wild card in the eyes. There were some, some mission workers there in the town and we, they were attending the church as well, but they probably thought, who is this young person? She's here without oversight. She's a bit yeah. random. You know, I, I was probably like, red lights flashing warning card to some people. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting because I think there is a temptation as well with the interconnected global world we live in for young guys to think, actually, I can just make a connection with a church in a country and go off on my own. Is that mm -hmm. what you recommend these days, that people just sort of go do a bit of trial and error on their own? <laughs> <laughs> Loaded question. I mean, it's, it's certainly not... Um, impossible that God might lead someone that way. I, I was so yeah. sure that God had led me that way. But in hindsight, 
I recognize that I could have used some really close colleagues, you know, to bounce things off. God's provision in allowing me to stay with the vicar and his wife, who just arrived at the same time as me. They were a slightly older couple, mm. well, probably twice my age almost, uh, in from England. Mm. And uh, I was a blessing to them because I spoke French already, and they didn't have any language uh, to communicate there. So that was a wonderful provision and oversight for me. But, you know, when you are entirely on your own, with no one that's asking you the hard questions or telling you, you should should you should think twice before you do this or that. I think I was a bit naive. Yeah. So, you know, um, by God's grace, uh, I was okay. But you're a bit vulnerable as a young single woman yes. in that male environment. And I soon realized that, you know, some of the people I was teaching were older than me and they probably thought, oh, you know, young unmarried woman, mm -hmm. um, what are my chances, you know? So right. <laughs> no one had warned me about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was just thinking because in both in India and in Pakistan, for a young single woman to be wandering around on her own, that's really asking for trouble. Mm. Um, and, and unfortunately, there, there are episodes of, of, yeah, out in the crowds being jostled and touched and so on. And I've had friends and if you don't know how to respond in a situation like that, it's very unnerving and frightening. Mm. And, mm. and did you have any nasty experiences like that or, or you felt, pretty secure you had friends to go around with no I, w I was on my own uh I had to go to work walk to work and back on my own um and and usually that was actually safe there were people around there was one experience I think where uh it was an unpleasant experience um can't remember if it was day or night someone coming up really close behind me mm -hmm. and uh deliberately you know and I um, just swung around and, you know, ran away or did something. But mm -hmm. um, generally, not too serious uh, situations there, I wouldn't say. Good. Yeah. And then, so that was just a couple of years. And tell us how then you ended up in Morocco. Right. So interestingly, that very first Sunday when I went to the church, I also met the man that I was going to marry, although I didn't know it at the time. So, um we, uh, he was working with OM doing the uh, preparation for the one of their ships, mm -hmm. the Logos, to come to the port of Tunis. They did educational book exhibits, and I decided to invite my students to uh, the ship because they had classes and things that you could do there. Mm -hmm. And so I was involved with him. Uh, helping these uh, students come along. He had a translator, so I, she was staying at the house with me. So we were pretty close. And I didn't know at the time what was going to happen. We didn't have, uh, my husband and I didn't have a lot of chance to have personal one-on-one -on -one time together, but I did sense that there was something there. And I committed it to the Lord when he left, just saying, Lord, if there's any way Mm. That, that you have something in this, then bring him back, that we could spend a bit more time together. And amazingly, God did that. He did have to come back mm. and uh, and do something in the country. So we had more overlap time. So I was praying about the future. And in my second year in Tunisia, I heard about um, Morocco, more about Morocco and an English teaching school where there was a a guy from the States who was running it. He was a believer. He was looking for English teachers. Mm. And I was maybe a little more interested in that school than the one I was teaching in, which was rather rigid and um, 
So I went across to check it out in my second year in Tunisia. And they said, yeah, we'll hire you. You're, we're ready for you to come uh, mm. the following year. So, yeah, I, I felt the Lord prepare that and provide something. And my husband in the meantime was, well, he wasn't my husband yet. He was just, yeah. <laughs> we were just <laughs> interested in each other. But he was also looking at long-term work in North Africa. Okay. And so it did end up that we uh, got married and went to Fez right after we were married, okay. pretty much. Yeah. Uh, and I was teaching English and he was learning Arabic. Wow. That's cool. Now, at this point, had he gone with Frontiers in those early days? That Frontiers had just been sort of formed and founded, I suppose. Yes. Just, just then, he met uh, in a corridor uh, the person who was going to be uh, leading a big team in Morocco scattered all around the country. Mm. And that person said to him, come along, join the team. And, and he said, okay. And uh, so that's why he ended up there. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And I mean, how many years have you been married now? 36. 36 years later. Wow. That's awesome. Mm. Brilliant. Okay. So you're in Fez now, you're married. Um, and did you have your kids while Actually, you were there? Yeah, actually, I, I, I just got my history wrong. We weren't married in Fez. We were engaged for that year. Yeah. yeah. He was living in the Medina. I was living with a Moroccan woman for nine months. Mm. And, and we were praying about what the Lord had for us, where for us to go. And it became clear that um, he was leading us to the south of Morocco. And mm. then we got married and went and lived in the town in the south of Morocco. Yeah, because, I mean, many people would say, look, if you're, if you're just getting married, you probably should have some time in your home cultures. Now, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, for you, mm-hmm. that might be England. For him, that's the States. And so that mm-hmm. might be more tricky. But did you think, I mean, it's a little bit different. You'd already been living in North Africa. So you've already got some language. Yeah. There. I suppose by then you've got French and Arabic. He's learning Arabic. So perhaps that already felt a bit like home by the time you got married. Yeah, we were aware of that um, advice that people often give. And I think the difference for us were were a couple of things. So home, going home to your home culture works very well if you're both from the same culture. But when you're from two different cultures, Mm. therefore, it wouldn't be home for me if we were in the States and it wouldn't be home for him if we were in England, whereas uh, this was neutral ground for both of us. And the fact that I'd been overseas for two years in Tunisia and in France, and he had been also overseas for a while, Mm -hmm. I think made us feel more comfortable about the concept of living uh, in this neutral sort of in-between place that we could both settle in for the first part of our marriage. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, for... For Jess and me, as you know, I mean, you know, we, we have this in common, don't we? We're Brits, yep. but we're both married Californians. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for us, yeah, I mean, Jess had been in Indonesia, I'd been in Pakistan, but we did, yeah, we didn't share the same overseas mm. location. And that would have made mm. a huge difference. I think if we'd met in the same country overseas or, or maybe even region, then it could have worked just to get married and stay out there. But, but for us, we, came back to spend some time in Britain and for, I'd never even been to America. So yes. it's really important for me to go and meet her family and yes. her after we got married. Um, yes. So it took us a year or two, which yeah. was useful before we went back to Pakistan. Great. Okay. So yeah. Tell us more then about how, where you ended up in the South of Morocco and what, what you did there. Yeah. So we, we started a trekking business in, wanted to do trekking in the Atlas mountains 
and my husband had contacts in uh, California for um, being able to perhaps bring a few people over. Mm. And there was a travel agency in our town that said, yes, we think we could work with you. So on the basis of that, we we started operating a very small adventure travel business mm -hmm. and had some groups coming over uh, and we took them on uh, tours into the Atlas Mountains for mm -hmm. two or three years. It was absolutely wonderful. Staying in local Berber villages. Mm -hmm. We were also learning Berber uh, as a language. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, those were wonderful days. Yeah, I, I've been up in the Atlas Mountains a couple of times. It's amazing up there, isn't it? And presumably you, yeah, you'd do the sort of tours around some of the cities as well before going up into the mountains or, or not really? Marrakesh. We usually had people arrive in Marrakesh and then, yes, there would be probably some time to look around Marrakesh and then we just head up in the mountains and mm -hmm. then, yeah, back to Marrakesh and they, they would leave. And so the team was forming around you at this time? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we were not the team leaders. We had a team leader that was way up in the north of the country. Mm. And at its zenith, I would say there were, I don't know, maybe 40 people in the country that were on this team. Wow. Uh, but we hardly ever saw our team leader. He would just pop down occasionally. And so we were sort of figuring it out among ourselves mm. uh, down in our town. And, and it was a good experience overall. Great. And tell us something about the Berber people. You know, for those who've never been to Morocco, can't, you know, imagine what, what this environment's like and what, what the people are like there. How, how are mm. they? Well, in Morocco, there are, very broadly speaking, there are probably three main Berber groups, one in the north called the Reef, uh, one in the Middle Atlas. Uh, they have a special name. One in the south, they have another name. And they were the original inhabitants of Morocco before... Uh, Arabs came in uh, with their conquest and um, then they turned, they became Muslims. Mm. And many of them live in rural areas, although the town that we were living in, certainly, probably when we moved there, had more Berbers than Arabs. I'm not sure today if that would be true. Mm. And there's a lot of intermarriage, so it's not so clearly defined anymore. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of rural living and in the mountains, especially people probably living very much like they've lived for hundreds, perhaps even thousands of years with very simple, very simple um, farming techniques. Mm -hmm. A lot of them not having any electricity, using mm -hmm. car batteries for a bit of light. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, very, yeah, very. Um, very simple lifestyle, I would say, but in many ways beautiful and unusual for people who come who've never seen that before. And I presume very hospitable, like many Muslim cultures? Oh, yes, extremely. Mm. Uh, and tourism, the, done the right way, could bring some really good things uh, into the communities. We did encourage all the groups that we had dressing a certain way mm. and... Uh, behaving in certain ways, we were given instruction about how you eat. If you eat with your hand, you eat with your right hand. Mm. And just a few things we, uh, women often would cover their heads just because in the villages, all the women had their heads covered, you know. So we encouraged a little bit of contextualized behavior. Yeah. And what kind of Islam would they be practicing mostly up in those Berber villages? You know, this sort of folk Islam practices? 
there were folk Islam practices. Some of the men would go to the mosques. Um, Morocco is a Sunni Islam uh, country, no Shia Islam there. Women, I wouldn't say, had much of any kind of practice. So probably the women more interested in folk Islamic practices mm. and the men probably somewhat afraid of those. Okay. And, and can you give us a few examples of what folk Islamic practices would look like for those who don't, aren't familiar mm -hmm. with that term? Well, in Morocco, you have a lot of saints' tombs all over the place. So in the mountains, in the cities, anywhere actually, people who during their lifetime had some interesting spiritual experience or were known for a particular thing, when they died, often a little tomb was built around them. And then it becomes a popular place for certain people to go for certain needs. Mm -hmm. So in our town in the South, there was a place where women who wanted to become pregnant mm -hmm. would go and they would pray to this saint that and leave an offering of some kind. Mm -hmm. Some of these saints' tombs have people attached to them who might say, I'm descended from that yeah. saint. And then they usually got money or gifts for the, you know, for being that person and saying, well, I'll put in a good word for you. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, or healings, um, you know, with different kinds of sicknesses, uh, mental distress, uh, that people would go to certain saints for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so it's they're looking a way for of finding help. Yes, look, they're looking for power. They're looking for mm. blessing. They're looking yeah. for health and and those kind of things. And and these are local, powerful people, I suppose, in the spiritual yeah. realm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, I mean, how did you find you know talking about your faith with with locals, with friends out there? Mm. Well, we we were learning the language, uh, Moroccan local dialect and obviously it takes time mm. to be able to represent what you want to say in a <laughs> cohesive clear way but it wasn't hard to talk about spiritual things with moroccans which was lovely they are very open and actually often curious and would often ask questions do you know do you fast do you pray yes do you know that what you believe is wrong uh, you know, the challenging people, probably more the men than the women. I didn't find the women went into um, uh, polemic kind of discussions, mm. but certainly questions and curiosity were open doors to be able to talk about Jesus and our relationship with him. And I learned a lot over the years. I think initially I often felt I had to answer very directly sort of yes, no answers which, of course, often closes the door and doesn't widen it um, and springboard off the curiosity that people have. So as my language improved, I started to be less direct in some of my answers and either respond with other questions or tell a story or talk in a way that actually created more curiosity rather than mm. would put us in a box, uh, you know, because often people assume certain things about you because you come from this country and you look like you do, yes. so you believe this. So would a, a good example of something like that be if they said to you, are you a Christian? Mm -hmm. It'd be very easy just to say yes. Right. Um, but that sort of shuts the door and, and makes, you don't know what they mean by Christian. You don't know what they're thinking. Right. So, yeah. So my first question would that, be yeah. then, well, what do you mean by that? Okay. And so... 
if a person said, for example, well, uh, they're a person who drink alcohol and eat pork mm. and believe in three gods, I would say, mm. no, I, I'm not that. Let mm. me tell you about uh, what I do, and then you can tell me who you think I am. Mm. Uh, you know, that kind of a thing. And then I would talk about um, wanting to know God, maybe praying uh, mm. that there is, yeah, there are different things that God wants us to do. He looks at our hearts, those kinds of things. Yeah, that's that's really helpful because we often have a blind spot, I think, in the West because we grow up in a sort of heavily educated society, but in a Western style education where it's about propositional truth. Mm. Um, so, so often we go out thinking, well, when I talk about Jesus, I need to talk about this is true and this is my argument and this is, you mm. know, I'm looking for something to kind of tear down while I'm telling you the truth. Mm. Um, mm. And yet, and that may, you know, there's a place for that, of course. Um, mm -hmm. Very important. And Paul is a good example of that, perhaps in Athens in Acts 17. But, you know, I often, when I'm talking about sharing our faith with Muslims, I, like you, talk about, well, storytelling and parable. Mm -hmm. Jesus yes. is, our, is our model in many ways. Yes. And he shared yes. so many stories, didn't he? And just dropped, you know, little things that maybe would develop curiosity, just like you said. I, I love that. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that might be really interesting for our listeners to think about. Yeah. How do we share the gospel? Mm -hmm. Is, is, are there different ways and how yes. do we reveal who we are and what our faith is yes. about without just closing the door and yeah. putting each one, other? One, one thing that impacted me was counting out the number of questions that Jesus asked in the Gospels. Mm. Um, it's it's hundred, well, over a hundred. Wow. And you have to say, well, was that just because he just didn't know all these answers? We, <laughs> it's yeah. not true. But he wanted to draw people out. Yeah. He he had such an amazing way of challenging and, and asking. And I think sometimes we're afraid of that because we think we have to have the answers, yes. but being able to come and be open enough to ask certain questions, I think is very important. Mm. Pointing people to Jesus rather than just giving them every answer. is mm -hmm. a slightly different way of doing, you know, what we mm -hmm. want to do. Um, probably we're aiming to do the same thing, but great. Yeah. That's really helpful. Um, so tell us about your kids. You had kids while you were out there? Yes. After two or three years, we had our first son. He was actually born in America. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have three children, two boys and a girl. Two of them were born in Morocco. And they, we wanted them to feel like they were integrated into life and culture. Mm -hmm. And so... It was, I think, the thing I shed the most tears about was just making decisions regarding their education once they got to school age. Right. Uh, recognizing in the town that we were living in, there wasn't an international school. So our options were local Moroccan school or a French school, but that was actually full and mm. we were not given priority there. So uh, our boys made it through several years of Moroccan school with all that that entailed until when I think our oldest was about 12 or maybe he was a little younger, but anyway, the two boys got a place in a new French Moroccan school that opened in our town. Mm. And uh, that was actually quite helpful for them uh, at, at that point. And um, yeah, they, they have very good memories of Morocco, even though they had some challenges there as well. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting because, 
that is one of the questions people will ask, especially young mothers, either taking mm. little kids overseas or thinking about having their kids in, in countries. Yeah. That they're not used to the health system and they don't perhaps have all the contacts and family members around to support them. So how, do you, how would you answer someone who challenged you on that and said, why would you have your, your kids over there when, you know, in a small town where there's not a great healthcare system, mm. perhaps? Mm. Um, and, and why would you raise your kids there? You're depriving them of so much from all the comforts and, and opportunities we have in the West. Right. We were asked that. <laughs> I'm sure you <laughs> really were. Really those words. <laughs> yeah. And I think uh, we recognise that part of what sometimes we think as parents is that if I had a good experience doing, say, a particular sport when I was growing up, we almost feel our children should have that same experience very often. If I grew up playing the piano, well, my child should be able to have piano lessons too. Yeah. And some of that is legitimate and some of it maybe is a bit unnecessary because there are other things that our children can do in the context that we're in. And I think that the benefits of growing up in a cross-cultural situation should not be underemphasized. Mm -hmm. There are some wonderful things that our kids got to do that they would never have done if they'd grown up in England or, or in America. But it's not that it's not without a struggle. And it's good to be honest. Uh, I always was honest, I think, with with God and and my husband and I talking about how do we answer concerned parents and others um, who are watching and wanting to see what's happening with the children and thinking, are they going to be deprived of a good education? Uh, I, I'm not opposed to a good education, but I think uh, in many places you can work something out and the influence in the home is, is primary. Mm. Uh, that's, that's very important. Yes, there are many Many things to learn and many ways to learn, aren't there? And, and we mm. forget that. It's mm. not just one system and one type of schooling that makes us yeah. who we are. I, I like that. Even my kids actually at primary school, they, they learn about being smart in different ways, people smart and emotional mm. smart. And, um, yeah. Okay, academic smart as well. But yeah, I think it's easy just to get too narrow on this one way to be well-educated, which is yeah. not actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. And um so you, yeah, you say your kids look back and, you know, with pretty fond memories overall, uh, despite yes. the challenges. In terms of having two of your kids out there in Morocco, was that a challenging time, not having family around? Yes, I did uh, have my mum come over for mm. those two births. So our second son was born in the town in the south that uh, we chose a hospital, a small clinic, actually, that we thought would be good and it was just unfortunate that on the day of his birth, when he came along, it was a Sunday. And so the doctor was gone. The doctor I'd been tracking with, he was away on a fishing trip and all the nurses were off. <laughs> and there was one nurse who was available on Sunday. And that was okay uh, until another woman came in to have a baby. And so she was like running back and forth between us. So she was... Um, busy with with two women and my husband was probably more stressed than me uh watching everything going on <laughs> and then i was not able to get the proper care after the birth i needed some attention didn't get it mm. and as a result i went home but two weeks later 
I woke up one morning in absolute agony in one of my hips and I couldn't walk. So my husband and a neighbor carried me out to the car, took me back to the clinic. And I was in there for, I think, five days. They put me on some very heavy antibiotics and said, I must have got an infection in my hip. Yeah. And it was to do with the aftercare after the birth. Yeah. Fortunately, my mother was still there. Amazingly, she had booked for three weeks and mm. it covered the whole time from the birth until when I came out mm. of the clinic at the end. So there was extra help around. But it was a very difficult time. And I don't think I realized the extent of how serious it was until later mm. when uh, next time I was traveling, I think I was in the States, I saw an orthopedic surgeon because I had still been limping a bit. Mm. And they asked me all kinds of questions about the treatment. And they said, well, it's a miracle that you're, <laughs> that you're doing okay, you know, that you, um, that you can still walk. Yes. So, and now I ha I'm fine. I have no problem at all. Uh, so I see God's mercy in that. But mm -hmm. it was a challenging time. And you still had another baby out in Morocco. I did, but in the capital city with an English midwife who was there. Mm -hmm. And I felt much more confident, even though I mm -hmm. only went up there a couple of weeks before the, I was due. She had been doing midwifery for so many years, and I knew a couple other women who'd had children with her. Yeah. And actually, that was the most relaxed, most uh, the easiest of the births. Only my daughter was born with um, a little tumor on her gum and uh, it was sort of sticking out of her mouth. We thought it was her tongue, but it wasn't. Mm. And so that had to be dealt with. But amazingly, we were in the capital city where there were hospitals that could deal with that kind of thing. Okay. And so we saw that as a special blessing. Mm. I, I tend to be not a worrier. I tend to assume that things are always going to work out. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably... <laughs> help me in a you're thinking well you know it's it's going to be okay that's good yeah gosh yes if if your mind goes there there are so many things to to worry about on there even right you know, wherever you're having giving birth to kids it's a, yes it's a frightening it's time true. in many ways but mm -hmm. yeah gosh oh, i'm glad that all worked out well for you guys yeah. um yeah so we've talked about just you know how you arrived there and and the local Muslims and some conversations about faith with them. What, what overall, as you look back on, I mean, it's, it's a lot of years, 21 years. What would you say are some of the highlights of your time together there as a, as a family? So we, we really love uh, Moroccan people, culture. We did uh, have some good friends, local friends that we're still friends with. And of course, we were wanting to share Jesus with them. And there were people that came to faith. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not give us a five-star rating so that more folks can hear these inspiring stories and join us in praying, sending, giving and going. Or how about inviting me or one of my colleagues to speak at your church? I'd love to hear from you. Email me on matt at frontiers.org.uk. And now back to the podcast. And of course, we were wanting to share Jesus with them. And there were people that came to faith mm -hmm. and uh, we're still in contact with some of those people. And mm -hmm. we saw um, how, what God was doing in other cities mm -hmm. and how more and more people were 
coming into the kingdom, not in huge numbers, but it's so encouraging to see lives transformed. Mm. And so that, of course, was a highlight, just to see that God is at work and he will speak to people in such different ways. Mm. And I think learning to live in close community uh, on the team, we had international teams most of our time there mm. and so many different countries represented and there that comes with big challenges but also huge joys because being with people that you're committed to the same thing you can pray together you weep with when they weep you have you rejoice when they rejoice mm. uh, that that's very very special it's hard to replicate and we really missed it actually when we left the country because uh, we didn't quite get back into that same kind of life on life in the same way as you sometimes do when you live overseas, mm. partly because the options are less over there for uh, that kind of living. Yeah, um, so that element of, of close-knit community with a small yeah. team, there for a purpose, seeking God's mm -hmm. kingdom. Yeah, it, it's it's very hard to replicate in, in just sort of a, a normal English church yes. situation, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It's not quite the same as just being in a home group with someone and, and doing some studies. Yes. Some, yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. And I mean, I, I think you've told me before, but there were challenging experiences as well. Um, you told me something about your, your friends who started to doubt even what you were doing out there. Right. Yeah, that was a difficult experience after about six years. We, a couple joined us. They were really good friends mm. and everything seemed to be going well. And one night the wife had a, a dream, actually, a very significant dream. And she came and shared it with us. And basically she said uh, she felt that God was saying, most of the Christian workers in the country were working in the flesh and it was not of God and God was telling them all to leave. Wow. And that applied, they thought it applied to all of us, hmm. not just uh, themselves. And then they, we asked for input from others. We said, Hey, let's get our pastors and others to speak into this. Hmm. And we, we didn't get much response at the time. People didn't seem to want to touch it, really. Uh, and then they were getting a bit impatient and I think, uh, or, or convicted just by what they felt they should be doing. And so they actually traveled around to other cities and talked to other people that they knew, sharing this with them. And as a result, at least four families left uh, the country. Wow. And we also after a while, the wind was just taken out of our sails. And we went back to the States, not mm -hmm. quite knowing what God had for us. I think we really questioned uh, our own calling. Maybe, maybe is this true God? Are we missing something here? Mm. We, we were really thrown for, a, thrown for a loop. And during that time back in the States, we... We were ministered to by so many wonderful people. Uh, we, we were prayed for and we just lived um, with our, we had two kids then. And 
it was a time of healing, I think, and mm. starting to hear some wisdom that was speaking into what had happened that helped us to put it in a better context. Mm. And it was a prayer of ours that we could, it became apparent that we felt the Lord was calling us back, that it wasn't the end. Mm. And uh, that perhaps, yeah, there, there may have been some things that all of us do <laughs> uh, in the flesh, but really? it wasn't necessarily a meaning that we should all leave. But we did want to be reconciled with this couple before we left. Yeah. And that was, uh, we felt we couldn't go back until that happened. And so it did eventually happen. We were there for, I think, about nine months in all. And we did meet with uh, that couple a couple of times to be reconciled. And there was a lot of healing that uh, was that took place. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness asked, I think, uh, the process of how all that was handled was recognized to be not the best by any stretch of the imagination. So, yeah, yeah it was a difficult time. Uh, but we returned and fully convinced that that's what we should be doing and yeah. haven't doubted since. Well, that's really interesting because it's one thing to say, you know, I, I think some of this work is coming out of the flesh, but to say that means you've all got to leave, it, it takes it to another level, doesn't it? Because mm-hmm. like you say, there are many times in what we do now, you know, uh, I speak in churches, I speak at Christian unions and, there are probably times when it's been too much of me and not, a lot, mm. not enough of the Lord. And mm. I think any preacher would probably resonate with that or anyone who mm. teaches and trains the church. And even when we're sharing the gospel with friends, there are times when probably we feel, oh, the Spirit gave me something wonderful. And that, that was definitely not just me. And other mm. times when maybe we've just fallen back on, oh, that was probably just something I learned and I tried it and it kind of fell flat. Yeah. But again, do we quit? Do, does every pastor who starts to feel down about, oh, that sermon wasn't the best, it was a bit in the flesh, I just repeated something. Yeah. To, to quit, that's that's a huge thing. Yeah. And it almost, I don't know, that would put a lot of guilt on me thinking, oh, I yeah. can only operate in this ministry if I'm constantly in this amazing mm. flow of the spirit. And, you know, the, yeah. when, I, when I talk to people, even about calling, there's a lot of, me and my calling in my my life mm. i can't get away from that we're human we are mm. you know we're always going to have elements probably aren't we that we're wrestling mm. with and the challenge should be press in keep close mm. to the spirit keep in step with the spirit spend more time with the lord so it's coming mm. from that good place rather yeah. than a, a yeah. striving place but not, yeah to, to jump straight to let's just quit mm. doesn't sound right mm. But yeah, it's, it must have been so tough for you to work through all that. And then really- it was. It was, a, it was a difficult time, and uh, perhaps yeah, one of the very challenging at the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, team conflict is not <laughs> unique to you guys. There have been you know, many stories. Anyone who's worked on teams and worked in churches, yes. you know, clashes happen, personality clashes, or ministry yeah. ideas or strategy clashes mm. any tips for folks working on teams mm. and, you know that you've learned over the years for reconciliation and peacemaking right i do think it's very important for people to know when they are considering say joining a team or the first time or going overseas initially mm. things that are undealt with in our own lives are not going to just disappear when we go overseas in fact 
Mm. A friend of mine says it's like putting grow more on them, you know, like a special kind of fertilizer. <laughs> they will just multiply when you're overseas because of the additional stresses that you face when you're overseas. Yeah. So if, if we are aware that we have certain patterns of behavior or ways of responding yeah. that we feel are always messing up our interactions, mm. I would say get help, talk to people about it, invite people in to help you in your personal interactions because those things just get magnified when we go overseas, I, I think. And it's usually to do with the extra stresses and living in this very close-knit community. Yeah. You don't have loads of other people that you can spend time with yes. when it's not going well on your team. So, I mean, expat people perhaps that are like-minded like you. Um, so that would be one thing is, is having that attitude of humility to recognize what what's hindering me in my relationships am i willing to work on those things mm. we do have good peacemaking training now available because of the fact that this is such a common reason for people to leave sadly is not because of the stresses in the place they're in but it's to do with interpersonal conflict and if you haven't grown up in a family where ha conflict was handled well yeah and you've come from a church where conflict hasn't really been addressed properly and you don't mm. have the tools. Yeah. So many of us are in the same position. I didn't go with good tools to know how to deal with conflict. Mm. So I've learned so much uh, over the years, but it does require humility and a willingness to let go sometimes of our pet things so that we don't, they don't escalate. If I just am so convinced of my way of doing things that I can't, let go of it, um, there's something maybe wrong because God in the grand scheme of things is bigger than me and my best idea. Right. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. And now what about some of the local believers? Um, any challenges working with local believers, trying to help them establish church together? Mm. We, in the town that we were in, we had a mature uh, Berber believer who had actually been to Bible school in Lebanon, and he and his wife and children were wonderful people who could really facilitate uh, the young people who were coming to faith. They were mostly young people, but um, through the connections that we had with some of the young people, we were meeting their family members. Mm. Uh, and so they also were very open, some of them, to, to the Lord. And there were challenges working with this wonderful man. Uh, you can imagine wanting to defer to, to people who are from the people that you want to work with. It's not that we come in with necessarily all the answers by any means. So mm -hmm. deferring, but then maybe sometimes you feel that the approach is a little too cautious. The need to be absolutely convinced that people are in the kingdom waiting so long before a person can be get can get baptized okay. is not what we were seeing in acts for example but that was what was um the approach and so yeah balancing how you work alongside someone without creating another denomination you know <laughs> so the history of the church is just well i don't agree with that so i'm just going to go off and do my own thing here yeah. we weren't wanting to just operate like that in with well we don't agree with you so we're just going to be doing something different so that was always challenging how to work alongside 
but also not get stuck. That was one thing. Uh, mostly we didn't have the best insight probably on where people were on their journeys. And you could, we could make a lot of assumptions, mm. but we discovered later because people were honest with us, especially after they'd been in faith for a while. And they would say, you know, for those two years when I was coming along to meetings and you saw I was fully on board, I was also going to the mosque and I just wasn't sure, yeah. but I wanted to check it out. You know, they, they would tell you things like that and you realize, wow, probably yeah. just as well. I didn't know. But <laughs> um, yeah, that was one yeah. of the things. And did any of those new believers face family persecution or state persecution at all? Were they pretty underground, yeah, they, pretty secret about their faith? Yeah. Some were more secret than others. Uh, I think there was a certain fear of persecution and uh, there were some who kept it very below the radar with their families. And um, there were, in other cities, we heard of perhaps more persecution than, than in our particular city. So um, there was a man who was very much persecuted in our town, but he he had a way about him that just really was very bizarre. And I think people then put him in the category of uh, he has mental health issues and he was put in a, a sort of a location where that could be treated. And he was given all kinds of horrible medicines to, um, you know, to change his way of thinking. Mm. But he was a believer, but he just went about sharing his faith in such mm. dogmatic and unfortunate ways that yeah. he was pulled off, he was pulled in, you know, and, and that was very unfortunate. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, I know that when you have a, a group of new believers in, from a Muslim background, they they do have suspicions. They're worried about somebody coming into the group and perhaps it's a, a government spy or they're insincere and they're yeah. just going to tell on us. How did they cope with that right so it wasn't the practice to probably invite people in we wouldn't be the ones to invite people in ourselves we usually let um others filter that and yeah. that yeah building trust was huge mm. and i think even when people were in relationship in the group there were levels of relationship some were closer than others you could tell Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's uh, it's unfortunate that that's such a common thing you hear with groups uh, in the Muslim world is how to build trust and for people to yeah to get beyond that and uh, be willing to meet together. But we did see among some of the the, the young men actually um, really over over time good relationships form, and uh, that that's been encouraging. And there were some that were quite happy to share their faith. Was it with, you know, carefully with family members? and Yeah, yeah, yes. In lines, kinship lines. Yeah, especially if the family was slightly, there was one family that we were particularly close to where there was no head of the household anymore. The, the husband had gone off and the mother was left with seven children. She mm. was very open to what her children were telling her mm. and um, came to faith in and uh, it was beautiful. And, and several of the children were in the kingdom. They've married uh, believers, and it's just wonderful to see. So that was an extended household that um, there was a lot more freedom. If you have a very strong patriarch, 
you know, um, that can be much harder. Mm. But sometimes where the family system was already a bit broken, it, it can be easier. Mm. And what restrictions are there from the state in terms of law? I mean, it- Yes, I believe proselytizing is illegal in the country, mm. but that's got a certain definition. And of course, it's impossible to stop people answering questions and sharing what they believe when they're asked. So we didn't want to emphasize religions. We didn't want to say to people, you're leaving this, you're coming into another. We yeah. we um, brought down the whole, uh, we talked about following Jesus, basically. Mm. And we're not trying to use labels that are often very misunderstanding because most people's definition of a Christian is not what we would say is a Christian. So that just wasn't helpful. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. You know, I've got a colleague who often talks about what, what is the message of Jesus? Was it here's a new religion and bringing Christianity um, to replace other religions? No, his message was the kingdom of God, the kingdom mm. of God is near, the kingdom of God is at hand. This right. is what it looks like. The way into the kingdom of God is through me, Jesus said, you know, and it was all, yeah about him wasn't it and yeah um, and his relationship to the father and how we can enter into that rather mm. than establishing a whole set of new rules and new religious practices yeah so yeah i think that's that can be quite mm. eye-opening for people when they think about the gospel message like that yeah yeah mm. any other low lights or challenges or heartaches perhaps you experienced out there yes regarding uh, a believer it, it wasn't someone that I knew from the beginning of her journey. It was a woman who I was sort of handed on by somebody else. Mm. She was probably in her 40s when I got to know her. And she regularly showed up at our house, intending to stay for a few days. And, you know, we would talk about things. We would actually do some studies of the word, Mm. uh, try to pray with her. She knew uh, the wife of, well, she knew the believing couple uh, that I've referred to before um, who were in town uh, from the, the um, from the local people. But she tended to prefer to be hanging around foreigners, I noticed. And it over time, I started to feel this dark cloud coming when she was staying with us. Right. And I couldn't put my finger on it. And I started to blame myself because... Uh, I just thought, why do I feel this way? I should be loving. I should be kind. I, what's going on here? But yeah. it didn't change. And then I started to get my suspicions about why it was that we never saw her in her context. We often tried to arrange to visit her in her town, and there was always some reason why we couldn't. Yeah. And, yeah, just it was a very one-sided relationship, not very healthy. And I didn't like this feeling of, of hosting someone when my heart isn't in it. Mm. And it came to a climax one time when I was very suspicious. She always had this big bag with her. And I started to wonder what was in this big bag. Mm. And one time, and, and she'd keep it very close to her. Mm. I mean, it was hardly ever out of her sight. And one time when she happened to go to the bathroom or something, I decided I'm, I'm just going to look in it, you know. And, mm. and, and I saw some of my stuff from my house in it. And... And it wasn't that um, 
I think I'd noticed a few things going missing, not mm-hmm. nothing major. And it wasn't that we had tons of knickknacks or, or, but, you know, forks or a sheet or, you know, random things. And so it's not actually the cost or the value of the thing. It's the fact that you've been dealing with someone who's actually betraying you and betraying a trust was horrible. Mm. And I didn't quite know how to handle it. I, I challenged her when she came back. I think we were talking about something. She was on her way out that day. Yeah. And I, I had been challenging her before about certain things, but because she was older than me, I think I always found it a bit hard. Um, mm. And then I just said to her, you know, what's in your bag? And she sort of grabbed her bag and rushed out of the house. And that was the last I saw of her. Mm. And it was, yeah, it was the sort of the aftershock was really hard for me because it was over a period of years that we had been hosting her and feeling, yeah, just feeling there's something not quite right and you can't put your finger on it. And I don't know, Mm. wasn't very nice. Um, Yeah. Disappointing. Definitely. Yeah, that's, yeah, I can imagine, oh, one, it's your house, you've been giving and pouring your life into this person, and you think she's a sister in the Lord, and you hope she is, and yeah, to yeah. F- suddenly realise that, oh, she's been stealing from us all this time, it makes you doubt everything, doesn't it, probably? It does. It makes you yeah. doubt, oh, was I not hearing from God? Why was yeah. I investing so much time in that person? Yeah. Yeah. the others who are coming right. to my house and doing the same. It's true. Oh, just sets you you're spiraling probably. Yeah. Yeah. But amazingly, you know, I, I recognize now that what I was sensing was from God. It, there was a dark cloud coming in. It was, it was a discerning um, that I had. Hmm. I maybe could have sought more wisdom from others about how I could handle it, you know. Um, but we were delighted to have, uh, there was a family that regularly stayed in our house of local believers when we were traveling and gone for a couple of months. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they were rather a poor family and for them it was like going on holiday. And so we weren't, we didn't become so defensive that like, well, we'll never have anyone, you know, yeah. and, and yeah. those were wonderful experiences and they still tell us mm-hmm. how much they enjoyed being in our house and, you know, feeling like it was their home for a little bit. So that was a good thing. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's fast forward then to, I suppose your kids, did they grow up and head off to um, university while you were still living in Morocco or did you come back when they were at university age? No, we left when they were 17, 15 and 13, which is a bit of a tricky time. Actually, my mm. husband was invited to take on a role in uh, leadership in England and we said no several times and then started to pray more about it and invite input from others, our supporters and our churches. Mm-hmm. And actually all the feedback we got was that we should consider it. So we very, I think, reluctantly made the move. And so it was a bit awkward for schooling. Our Amazingly, our oldest son had requested doing the last two years of high school online in English. So he'd up to that time been doing everything in Arabic and French. Yeah. But so he was already doing online school in English, which was perfect for transitioning. Mm. Our second son, who was 15, had missed a year of GCSEs, you know, in the typical uh, British system. Mm. But uh, I figured out something, you know, because he was told, well, when I made inquiries, they say he'll have to redo a year. 
he'll have to do the first year of GCSEs. And I thought, oh dear, that's a shame. Maybe he doesn't need all those GCSEs. Maybe he can get away with five instead of 10. If people can do 10 in two years, maybe he can do five in one year. And so that's what he did. And um, because he was, he's very artistic, he was able to go to a local college and do photography, went to university, did visual communication, excelled, Mm -hmm. and it was never a problem really. So, and our daughter, because she was younger, 13, she could go into a high school. Um, That part, you know, it was difficult, but we worked it out. Yeah. But I suppose more of the challenge was just uprooting your life and leaving friends and the place where yeah. you've been for two decades. Yes, it, it was. I don't think I realised uh, how difficult that would be. And uh, there were some there were some things that helped. The fact that uh, my mother um, was now living on her own mm. and my brother didn't live in England either. So mm. uh, she finally got a child back and uh, I was so happy that I could have several years with her. before she passed away. That was a huge blessing. I think for the kids' education, um, for the younger two, actually, there were many more options here, you know, than there would have been um, where we were. So that was an additional benefit. But it didn't diminish just how hard it was to leave that work. And I think because my husband had something to come back to, he could jump in sort of right away. Mm. And I didn't I didn't really have a role I I that was challenging for me for a while and I think I assumed I'd just be able to dig into local relationships perhaps with Muslim people Mm. um but that was much harder because I didn't speak the language and uh it seemed like a very different community to what I was used to so yeah that that was very challenging for me yeah yeah there's there's something isn't there about when you're the odd one out overseas Mm -hmm. constantly invited into homes and uh, welcomed and you're interesting to people but when you're here um, friends with local Muslims in in Britain can be more challenging can't it yeah Yeah. and then over the over the last few years then I mean you and your husband have both been in leadership with within our organization and you've been training and teaching on, on storytelling and ministry to women and so on can you give us any Hints, perhaps there are um, some ladies listening to the podcast who are thinking maybe the Lord's calling me to work with Muslims. Any tips, any suggestions, ideas, things that you train on? Um, Mm. Perhaps it could be the role of prayer, the role of the supernatural, storytelling you've mentioned before. Mm. Anything? Mm. I think for women particularly, hospitality is huge. Mm. I discovered and learned so much about hospitality in Morocco. And... Although I had known a little bit about it in England, uh, oh, it was entirely different over there. So I think developing um, that gift of being willing to um, have people drop in at any time Mm. and have maybe something available to eat. Doing discipleship in the context of food (laughs) is hugely important, I think. And sometimes we don't, recognize how hugely important that can be so um i did have to learn how to cook and do Mm. things in the way that they did them in morocco and then since we came back uh, i realized yeah hospitality is is still hugely important and opening our homes and inviting people in uh is is very very significant so that's true for women i think 
discovering felt needs of women and not assuming that um, we know them. Sometimes we think if a woman looks so different, she might be wearing the hijab, she, mm. you know, she's completely covered and you almost think I can't relate to this person. I don't know what her world is like, but actually probably some of her felt needs are entirely the same as our own. Mm-hmm. And finding ways to draw out those felt needs, asking questions about that lady's experience of, of life growing mm-hmm. up. What was it like as a girl? Um, what's, you know, how, how her parents view having daughters or sons. What's her own view on relationships? I mean, discovering more about the people that you're with so that you can understand uh, their journey, what they've been through, I think is very, very important so mm. that you can understand their felt needs as well and discover uh, are they similar to mine or not. Mm. I never had any woman refuse prayer when I offered it. Okay. So, mm. no. So becoming comfortable and, and learning how you could pray with others, I think is hugely important. Mm. And I, I made lots of mistakes when I was starting out thinking I had to do it a certain way. And I think over time I developed something I was very comfortable with, but also just developing the, the boldness and trusting that it's okay to say, I would love to pray for you. Uh, this is important. And my heart is touched. Can I, can I pray for you now? Um, is yeah. is really good to do. And, uh, you know, many Muslims, will do their five times a day ritual prayers. And then they have the concept of dua, which is personal from the heart prayers as well. But did you find that ladies, when you prayed with them, were a bit surprised about how we pray and how we interact and talk with God? Yes, definitely. And I think we might need to adjust sometimes the way we do it uh, from how we might do it, say, in church with friends and how we might do it with a Muslim friend. I think it can be helpful not to close our eyes. It can be helpful to raise our hands to show that we're praying. Mm. Uh, I think if we want to actually touch someone, we could even prep them and say, if it's like they have a particular health problem, you know, we can say, is it okay if I put my hand on your hurting shoulder? Because, um, yeah, that kind of a thing. Uh, Saying that I'll be praying in in the name of Jesus um, can be helpful. and. Uh, addressing God with the right kind of, you know, language that's that's honouring Him mm. uh, is is always good. I think. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's things to mention. Yeah, yeah. I remember even just praying with some some friends in in Pakistan, and they do really appreciate it when you've made those bridges already. You know, explain. I want to pray in the name of Jesus or Isa al-Masih, mm-hmm. even his mm-hmm. honorific title, the Messiah right. or something, or Sayyidina Isa. But yes. the reason I want to pray in his name is because he is the healer and mm-hmm. all that connection. And, and because the Quran itself teaches he's the great healer, the greatest healer of all the prophets. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. okay? Is it okay yeah. if I pray with you in his name? And yeah. then, yeah, I'm the same. I can't think of anyone who said, no, <laughs> you know, yeah. yes, you do. And and even if God doesn't show up and do a miracle or they don't feel right. you've experienced, there's still an, a, a strong element of showing them that you care yes. and being serious about it and stepping out in faith. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Something I think that I've been really helped by 
if I'm unsure of a response or somebody challenges me with something on the spot and, and it's, it's in a relationship where I can come back to the person, mm. is actually to say, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm unsure of what to say to what you've said, but I, I'm going to go away and pray about it. I'm going to read uh, in my holy book and mm. I'll come back to you. And, and then, you, of course, you do that. And I think that can really relieve some of the pressure mm. to think that, golly, uh, here's something, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I have to give an answer. I have to be the answer mm -hmm. person. I think we can give ourselves some space yes. and also demonstrate that uh, there are ways of finding out about what God wants in life. And that's something that we do. Mm. Uh, so that, that was really helpful for me to learn some years ago. Uh, mm. And I encourage people with that to not feel too much pressure to have to come in with quick answers and anything afterwards. Oh dear. Wish I hadn't said that. I, I realized that was, you know, unfortunate. Yeah. I've done that many times. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then in terms of, we're talking about praying for people particularly, but would you find it's quite common in those who came to faith, in Morocco, that there was a, a healing or a dream or a vision as part of their testimony? Yeah, um, some, sometimes not. It wasn't always the case, but definitely uh, for some, there were significant supernatural encounters. And mm. so our, my own journey involved becoming much more open to the supernatural. And depending on church background, you know, you, you may or may not um, be have to have that background so yes it was very clear to us when we got there that wow we were going to need to learn about our authority in christ as believers mm. because there are people who've been involved in practices like we talked about folk islam there's spiritual influence in their lives there are people who are on their way into the kingdom but actually they need to renounce things that they've been involved in or things that were done to them but i I'd never come across that in England with people coming to faith that they need to renounce anything or, um, mm. yeah, just, just be aware of, of some of the baggage that can be there. And mm. we, we all have baggage, that's for sure. And mm. maybe some of this renouncing ought to be done more, uh, you know, in all countries, in all contexts. Yeah. But I think we were quite aware of it uh, in, in Morocco. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a really good word. Yeah, I, I still feel I've got so much to learn about the spiritual world and occultic witchcraft practices that some mm -hmm. you know, some folks get connected into. And yeah, let alone all the amulets and the charms and different things like that. And yes, yeah, it's, it's not always natural for us in our context, in our church context, to deal with a lot of that. No, and there are many good books and things that you can learn. And, and the best thing mm -hmm. actually to do is go with someone. Uh, who already is is perhaps a little further along on this journey and and watch and observe and then you know you 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 get some help to be able to do those things yourself yeah that's great and and I love the way you say too that humility to say okay this experience or that question might be a little beyond me mm. and go away and get some help bring a friend um, mm. raise up some prayer yeah um, spend some time <laughs> yeah just preparing and then come back if it's a ministry situation or, or a tough question, yeah. why not? Yeah, we don't have yeah. all the answers immediately. Yeah. 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 Great. Uh, it's Molly, thank you so much for being with me and being with us today and sharing these stories. Um, I'm really encouraged just your faithfulness over so many years. 
and raising your family out there and persevering, persevering, seeing some of that fruit that you've seen is, is always encouraging to hear about. Um, yeah. So thanks for being with me. Any final words you want to say? Uh, it's been great to be asked all these different things. I, I pray it would be an encouragement and a blessing for anyone who happens to listen. Thanks so much for listening. I hope today's episode has been inspiring and challenging. For more, check us out on our website, frontiers.org.uk and on all social media platforms, at Frontiers UK. Have a great week and make sure you don't miss our next episode.